From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. And I'm Luis Hernandez from WLRN in Miami. This is America Amplified. With the election just days away, how are you feeling? I am hopeful to see what this young generation are going to throw at our face. I'm feeling quite anxious. I think we would be naive if America does not prepare for a race war. There is enough frustration to go around. The other side is just as frustrated, just as angry. The Black and Hispanic community, we're looking at both parties and we're saying, hey, you guys have to earn our votes and our support. I love my Latino community, but I love America. And for a better future, Mr. Trump, is the only one. To be totally honest with you, I'm really tempted to walk down there on election day and write my own name. That's coming up after a short break. So stay with us. This is America Amplified, election 2020. Your voice counts. This is America Amplified. From WABE down south here in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm Rose Scott. And each week, I'm teaming up with co-hosts from across the country to bring you a special national series. It's been a year, and right now, the news cycle, yes, it's packed with the latest on which candidate is ahead in whatever poll, but we're not here to talk about that. Besides, you've probably already heard it anyway. On this broadcast, it's all about you. Our trans communities are left out on a lot of things. Hopelessness. I mean, the country is in such a divided place. Politics has really brought the ugly out of a lot of people. What I'm looking for so badly is a leader who can inspire Freedom is going to rely on us unifying together. I think we just need to start having raw conversations. Being able to sit with discomfort. Not just listening to respond, but listening to really understand. And that's where we come in. I'm Luis Hernandez with WLRN in Miami. We've spent months just listening from a farmland in Weewoka, Oklahoma, to Anchorage, Alaska, to the I-4 quarter in Florida. And you've got our attention. This is America Amplified, election 2020, your voice counts. Today, Lewis and I are here with you from the battleground states of Georgia and Florida. Now, no less to hear how this election cycle has affected communities across the country. To start today's program, we want to spend some time breaking down the so-called Latino vote because we keep hearing about all these different voter groups. So we're going to start there. And we know that there's no such thing as the Latino vote. But for the first time in the U.S., Latinos will make up the country's second largest voting demographic, second only to white Americans. The Pew Research Center says... A record 32 million Latinos are eligible to vote this year. So we wanted to know how are Latinos across the country approaching the election this year and what is most important to them? My name is Antonio Souza. I'm 25 years old. I live in, in Miami, Florida. I'm a Democrat, progressive, and I was born in Nicaragua. Yeah, I became a naturalized citizen a couple of years ago, and so this was my first election where I actually got a chance to pick who's going to be running the country. You know, the message that we're getting from the campaigns is capitalism versus socialism, which does a disservice to us because we care about more than just that. You know, we want to know, like, how do you create a new jobs for us that pay well in the energy sector so that we're not contributing to climate change? My name is Andrew Assam III. I was born in eastern Pennsylvania. I am a constitutional conservative, so... 
I believe that the government, like Ronald Reagan said, the government is not the solution. The government is the problem. And I witnessed that because of my parents' backgrounds. So I know communism because in Cuban families, they always sit around. And they talk about what communism is all about. It's about creating misery for everyone. And then the top people, they, they are well taken care of. In my opinion, that's where the Democratic Party is not heading towards. I think that's what it's all about. My name is Daphne Machado, and I'm originally from Peru, and I'm 49. I live in Pennsylvania. I don't know if I can call myself a Republican. I think I would call myself as a Trumper. I like him in 2016. That was the first time I ever voted in my life. He was like for the people. He wasn't a politician. He felt to me like somebody like I knew. I, I love my Latino community, but I love America. I'm here to work and here to respect the country and for a better future. And I think that Mr. Trump is the only one that can do it. My name is Reina Montoya. I was born in Mexico, but I call Arizona home and I am 29 years old. I'm definitely an independent. I live in a mixed immigration status family, and I'm a DACA recipient. My brother is a DACA recipient. My sister is a U.S. citizen. My dad just last year won his asylum case, and my mom is undocumented. So for me, immigration has been something that has directly impacted my life, and I just have seen the trauma and the fear and the pain that not having an immigration status creates not only in families, but all the barriers that prevent our human potential. We want to thank our assistant producer, Maiwa Aina, for that. And let's dive into some of what we just heard as we welcome our first guest, Danielle Cleland. She's an associate professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latino Studies at the University of Texas, Austin. Danielle, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. You know, Danielle, very often when the Latinos are discussed in the context of national elections, they're presented as this singular voting block. But you've done some research, and your research has found that couldn't be farther from the truth. There's so much racial diversity within the Latino community, and that, you know, has a lot to do with the way that people experience uh, politics, the way that people might have experiences with police, with our institutions, in the courts, um, applying for jobs. And so a lot of the differences that I look at are looking at race and thinking about how that matters. We know that Cuban-American community votes a bit differently than many other groups in this country, such as Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Dominicans, in that they are more conservative. And so when we look at black Cubans in particular, they're much more likely to be Democrats. Even those who might have been socialized as Republicans within the larger Cuban community in South Florida, once Barack Obama ran for office in 2008, they switched parties and voted for him because for them it was a historic racial moment. And so what we find within these communities, and particularly in the Cuban community, is that being black has a lot to do with the way that folks see politics. And so we can look at racial differences within the Latino community in the same way that we do between black and white people, um, you know, in the United States. In Miami, Cubans have access to whiteness in ways that, um, you know, lighter skinned uh, Mexicans or Nicaraguans uh, or Salvadorans don't have. And so when you are racialized as being non-white, when you experience higher levels of racial discrimination, that then 
affects the way that you think about politics and who you might vote for and how you feel about certain policies, such as a border wall. And, and Danielle, uh, look, you know Miami well. And Miami is the gateway to Latin America, so you have a little bit of everybody here. But mm-hmm. when you talk about Miami, the Miami influence, you're talking about the Cuban voter. They really have the most power. What influence do they have in which way Miami goes? Well, I think that has changed um, with each election. Certainly, you know, Barack Obama was able to garner a lot of the vote in South Florida. Um, And then in 2016, you know, Trump was able to do that. Um, And according to polls, we see that uh, more Cubans in 2020 seem to be supporting uh, Trump. We have seen over the years that this younger, you know, second and third generation uh, group of folks are voting a bit differently, particularly because they have less ties to Cuba. Um, And so they're not necessarily voting, thinking about their experiences in Cuba, but rather thinking about their experiences here in the United States. You also talked about that whiteness, and that's the thing about Mm -hmm. Latinos in, in South Florida compared to Latinos in Texas or California and elsewhere, it is that whiteness. And and as an Afro-Latino yourself, I'm wondering those racial disparities, how that impacted your relationships with people when you were here. Because as you said, that kind of shows you what the white-black thing is across the country. Uh, In South Florida, I was often othered. Um, I would find that people would not understand how a black woman, you know, spoke Spanish because essentially there's this distancing from blackness that occurs within Latino communities and particularly in South Florida, um, where, you know, black Latinos are marginalized. Um, You know, I would get followed in stores. Um, You know, I would experience particular treatment from police officers. And, you know, these would be white Cuban police officers. And so, you know, the experience of the everyday kind of microaggressions has an effect on the way that you vote and the way that you think about your position. It's really important to understand that when a group is given access to whiteness, similar to early European immigrants, for example, that also changes the way that they vote and the way that they see their position. Um, And so that's why I think we see such vast differences between folks that are voting in South Florida and Latinos that are voting outside of that area. Danielle, this is Rose Scott again from WABE in Atlanta. Can you shed some insight in terms of then how you're seeing within the Latino community, different various groups reacting to the Black Lives Matter protests this past summer? And have you had conversations with people about that might influence their vote? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, one of the small interviews that we heard before um, you introduced me talked about the Democrats and their connection to communism. Uh, And I think that is the kind of false narrative that is moving through the Cuban community about Black Lives Matter as well. And so there's a lot of discussion about Black Lives Matter being a Marxist organization. And I think that that gives uh, Cubans and Venezuelans in particular in uh, South Florida reason to be so anti-Black Lives Matter. And in fact, we've seen the protests that are happening You know, on one side of the street, you'll have uh, Trump supporters, mostly Latinos, and on the other side, you'll have Black Lives Matter protesters. And so while a lot of folks do not want to recognize the legitimacy of Black Lives Matter, then I think that what they 
turn to is this kind of Marxist narrative. But really what this is is anti-blackness. And, you know, Miami is an anti-black city. And that's not only about Afro-Latinos. That's about African-Americans, Haitians, Jamaicans. And so, you know, the kind of reaction from Latinos against Black Lives Matter is really rooted in that. And I want to share this. This is from Pedro Velasco in Arizona. He joined us for a listening session earlier this month. Oye, existo. No te acuerdas de mí nada más cuando otra vez son elecciones y necesitas el voto de la comunidad migrante, ¿no? Acuérdate de nosotros siempre, porque aquí estamos y existimos, y el hecho de que no podamos votar no significa que no contemos. So basically, Pedro is saying, look, I exist. Don't just remember me when it's election time and you need my vote. Uh, remember us all the time. We are here. We exist. Uh, Danielle, what's your response to that? On the Democratic side, I've heard a lot of this talk about, you know, what have the Democrats done for my community? Uh, you know, what have the Democrats done about immigration? What have the Democrats done for, you know, for black lives, for social justice? And these are, you know, valid arguments, I think, that, you know, the Democratic Party has had to answer, particularly in this election and, and with this campaign. In the future, you know, a lot of the protests that are happening will force the party to really reckon with these communities and think about, you know, what kinds of policies they need to put forth so that people will come out in mass to really vote uh, for the party. We've been speaking with Danielle Cleland, professor of political science and race relations at the University of Texas, Austin. Danielle, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. We've been talking about how folks are feeling leading up to Election Tuesday. And when we come back, we'll hear from other parts of the country. This is America Amplified, Election 2020, coming up. Wait, 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 um, go bag? You're going to leave? Yes. If anything happens um, with the recent riots and violence happening in certain communities, you just don't know what's going to happen. Stay with us. This is America Amplified. Welcome back. I'm Rose Scott from WABE in Atlanta. And I'm Luis Hernandez with WLRN in Miami. This is America Amplified, Election 2020. Your voice counts. This hour, we're getting a better sense of how you, how we, how we all are feeling as we get closer to Election Day. Another question to think about, how are we navigating our differences? Let's dissect that further with some folks who fall on different sides of the party lines. Joining the program now from Stillwell, Kansas, Pastor Franklin Ruff. From Atlanta, Georgia, a senior at Spelman College, Kayla Smith. And Jock Cunningham joins us from Missoula, Montana. Thank you all of you for joining us. Franklin, I want to start with you. How are you feeling as we lead up to Tuesday? Well, personally, I'm feeling just fine from a standpoint of the election. I am nervous and I'm concerned. I'm concerned about the possibility of conflict. As a pastor, I'm worried about conflict within the religious community, within my personal community. And my hope is that we can get through this situation, determine who our president is, and do so without hatred and especially without violence. Kayla, what about you? How are you feeling? I'm feeling quite anxious, but hopeful that we will 
get clear results on the day after the election. Um, recently, I came across a tweet um, by Lydia Diaz, who is the creator of Clever Girl Craftings. She's a Black creative, and she posted about a post-election safety plan. So I've been looking at it, and I've been sharing it with my friends just to keep our morale and high spirits, but also just making sure we're all prepared, regardless what the results are. And Jock, I mean, I'm hearing anxiety, concern. What about you? How are you feeling? I echo my partners here. I, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety, and I was disturbed dropping off my younger daughter at preschool. Uh, there was a piece on Marketplace on Morning Edition talking about how many businesses were taking out civil unrest insurance and how Walmart had decided to remove guns and ammunition from the shelves of all of its stores across the country because Walmart's worried about rioting. But I think people are primed for trouble. The emotions are, are high. And in Montana, we have a couple of nationally significant races. Between that and rapidly rising COVID rates, people are stressed around here. Jacques, let's stay with this for a moment, because I'm curious, how are you navigating through all of this? And what are you hearing from folks in your community? Well, if anything, I have raised emotions myself actively. I'm board chair of Montana Conservation Voters. And a number of our races have huge implications for the things that conservation voters care about, which are primarily conservation, of course, but also voting rights and representation. Yeah, I just was just talking to a neighbor who was on the other end of the political spectrum, and she said, you know, friends don't let politics get in the way. And I don't actually live in Missoula. I live on a town on the Flathead Reservation, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes half an hour outside, and there are only a few hundred residents. We don't get to be unkind to each other. You can't be impolite to other people because you see them every day. That's such an interesting point. I have not heard that yet. And I wonder if that's a you you experience that when you're living away from an urban site and and maybe you're forced into that, Um, that what you were saying to you were talking about that concern. You talked about businesses being worried about what might happen come Tuesday. Kayla, I heard you say something about a survival guide. Yes. Um, her name is Lydia Diaz, and I recently stumbled upon it last night. And some of her suggestions are to have a go bag um, with your essential items, um, not to shop on Election Day. So if you have to get groceries, I suggest, and I agree with her, do that beforehand. Just little ways and tips to preserve your peace on Election Day. Wait, wait, wait. Um, go bag? You're going to leave? Yes. If anything happens um, with the recent riots and violence happening in certain communities, you just don't know what's going to happen. You just have to be prepared. Let's hear from Imara Kennedy in Atlanta, Georgia. We met him at an America Amplified listening session. Imara shared some very real fears. I think we would be naive if America does not prepare for a race war like we've never seen. To me, I really think the destruction of America is long overdue and it's happening. I think allies are really going to have to step up their game even more so than I don't need you to just march on the streets for me because I, I think it's about to get real deep. And I think that we can, once we get to the other side of this deepness, we're going to begin to continue to build an American country and democracy that we're actually going to be proud of. Uh, I got to tell you, 
Lewis and everybody else, I mean, that's real. I've heard so many people talk about that, preparing for whatever may happen. And I'm curious because, Franklin, you are a pastor. How often have you talked about or do you talk about that intersection of politics? Absolutely. It's, it's my responsibility to do that. My my current sermon series right now is talking about seeing the person as a human being, as someone made in the image of God, uh, regardless of who they voted for. We are currently doing prayer twice a day for our nation, for unity within our nation. I'm a member of an organization called Braver Angels. And we have a program called With Malice Toward None, in which we're going to try and bring uh, people together that are feeling uh, not so great about the election results and people that are excited about the election results and let them sit down and, and see the humanity in each other. It, it, it's more than just a, a Trump supporter or someone who didn't support Trump. That's your neighbor. That's the person that you see in the Walmart. That's the person that might even take care of your kids. We have an initiative called Holding America Together in which uh, we hope we don't have to use, but if, if the election is contested and we don't know who our president is, in other words, if we have 2,000 on steroids, how can we get people together to understand that, that violence is not uh, the way that we should handle this situation. In my community personally, we're not worried about violence uh, within the community. Uh, we are a little bit concerned about violence coming from outside of the community. I'm in the edge of a rural area. And there is that, We, we in addition to uh, Democrat, Republican, Trump supporter, non-Trump supporter, there's that issue between rural America and urban America as well. And so I'm, yeah, I'm preaching about it as much as I can. I'm talking about it as much as I can. And I'm talking to whoever will listen uh, to get them to understand you need to see this person as a human being, not as who they voted for. That's really interesting. But I mean, you look at what's happened over the last four years and the divide uh, between sides. And it's not just about, because I think about what Jock said, how, you know, Friends don't let politics get in the way, and yet we've seen families where politics get in the way, marriages where politics get in the way. Kayla, you also do a podcast. You, do, you talked about there has to be a healing, regardless of who wins. But I'm listening to, to the pastor, and I'm wondering, where do you even start that? Because whoever wins, somebody's going to get really mad. And you're right. Regardless of the outcome, there will be disgruntled voices. There could be an outspew of violence. We're going to see that because at this point of our in our country's history, we are all frustrated. And to add on to that, there's a backdrop of a pandemic that has taken the lives of over 200,000 Americans. I believe we reached 9 million cases yesterday. So there's enough frustration to go around. And I think where healing starts is where we unpack the divide. And when we start asking ourselves these questions, I agree that we should see people as our neighbors, but then we need to start holding our neighbors accountable for how they view us. Politics shouldn't have to politicize human rights. I never understood that. Um, I'm an interdisciplinary major at Spelman and you know, we listened and we, you know, we unpacked the theories of theorists who were before our time. And I still find it interesting how systems and governments kind of argue or fight or um, I guess don't prioritize human rights at the forefront. So I think 
a part of healing is getting back to humanity. What does that look like? You know, I think we just need to start having raw conversations, kind of like what we're doing right now. I want to bring Jacques back into the conversation because you hear Kayla talking about unpacking the divide. And I'm curious, though, can you unpack that divide and have a civil conversation? But if your own personal experiences, your lived experiences influence your vote, I mean, Jacques, you're a hunter, you're an ecologist. Do you grapple with any of that as you go to the polls and you have to, you know, vote for someone who may be right in the middle of what's good for you, but what also could be bad for another demographic of folks? How do you reconcile that? It's it's hard. Um, Kayla said that everyone's frustrated, and I think she's absolutely right. And we, we've gone through this, I think, what will be an important pivot that sadly came out of these awful cell phone videos of showing one black man being shot in the back after another that really showed anyone who saw them that, hey, this is this is real, this happens, this is horrible, this has got to change. Leaving that justification aside, the lesson I take out of the Tea Party movement and Trump's election four years ago is that the other side is just as frustrated, just as angry, feeling just as disconnected and poorly served by government. So let me go through, I want to ask each of you this. I want to get a sense, everything we've been talking about, how is that going to be channeled into the way you go into that ballot box? And and Jock, I'll start with you since we're talking with you. Well, I've already voted and and I hope most of us have. I'm really heartened by the early voting rates that are being reported around the country. I, I think we've been poorly served recently, and and there's plenty of guilt to share on both sides of the aisle. I'm a political independent, but I voted a straight Democratic ticket because of that. Franklin, what about you? I have not voted. I will vote on Election Day, but our church is a polling place, so I will leave my office and walk down the hall and probably be one of the first people to vote. Uh, This is difficult for me. Uh, I have never in my life not voted, and and, and it's not going to change this time. I I listened to the stories. I had a grandfather who told me stories about uh, how hard fought it was for African-Americans to earn the right that everyone else had to vote, so I can't not do it. But I, I will say that, to be totally honest with you, I, I'm, I'm really tempted to walk down there on election day and write my own name, because I personally believe that I could probably do a better job than either one of these candidates that we have right now. So it's going to be difficult for me. This time, I don't even like the third party candidate, but I can't not do it. I, I, I don't think I can physically not vote because there are, there are my ancestors, who, who some of which died so that I could have this right and um, I can't not do it, but it's, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be rough. Kayla, uh, how do you feel about that? Wow, that was a lot to digest, but I will say that with this being my first presidential election, I've been struggling on how to articulate this moment and how I'm feeling. I voted in person on Friday, October 16th with my mom here in DeKalb County, Georgia. To me, my vote is an extension of my commitment to justice work, building community, and reimagining the world in a Black feminist lens. 
Although I am critical of all the candidates. And yes, as a 21 year old, I too think I could serve on someone's cabinet at this point. But I recognize that my vote is essential to redirecting America's current trajectory. At this point, we have a choice to make. Four more years of sustaining democracy or four years of healing together as a nation and also healing how we've impacted our peers in the international community. It's not just us who are being harmed by America's choices. And this is me as a black woman making it very clear, it's not just us. Our choices now are going to impact not only our country for the next few decades, but it's also gonna impact the international community. Well, Kayla, here's an opportunity because we're talking about having conversations across different groups. What do you want to say, if you choose to, to Pastor Frank, Franklin Ruff about what he had to say? Can you understand why, why he says he feels conflicted? Every day. Um, <laughs> like I said, I'm a 21-year-old, about to be 22 in November, so shout out to all the Scorpios for those who study astrology. There you go. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to plug that. <laughs> but um, I feel the same. I personally think that anyone who has a love for community and for understanding other communities with that pure intention can have the best intentions for this country i understand the frustration but at the same time i guess my time as a young adult you know young professional in the making i've come to realize that we have to approach voting with a realist point of view you know, <laughs> I get it. None of them are great. It's, I get it. But at the same time, let's just do the math. If you don't vote for someone and you go independent, who's that vote really helping? Well, I want to give Franklin an opportunity to respond. Franklin? Well, sometimes it comes down to conscience and belief. And how much do I believe it's going to actually change? Because I, I, I hear terms like justice and, and social justice and, 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 I, and one candidate uh, speaks the language better than the other. But I also look at the history. There have been times when both parties have had both branches of government. And how much has changed? My question is right now, can you honestly say, looking at what we have to choose from, that one of those two is a good choice. And my answer is simply, I don't, at this point, I don't think so. I'm going to vote uh, because we're not only voting for president, all politics is local. And so we've got school boards, we've got uh, county commissioners that I, I need to vote for. Um, on the top of the ticket though, um, the question is how much can I care about who wins when I just really don't know that I believe that either one of these men is going to make any substantial change to the country in the next four years. Let me, as we wrap up here, Jock, I'm going to give you the last word and I want to ask you, I'm listening to Franklin, it's that voting conscience versus what is the reality? I mean, what, what do you say to that? Well, to be honest, I'd be very grateful to have a White House that was a neutral actor instead of the enemy. And that's the way I feel now, that I have to fight everything the White House is doing. There have been a couple of policies I agree with. I, I shouldn't 
paint with such a broad brush. But by and large, it's the enemy. And government is powerful. Government spends a lot of money, does a lot of things. And when the government is either just doing its business and staying out of the ways of, of communities and, and individuals, uh, that's a lot better than what we have now. And when it's actually helping, then that's as it should be. And I've seen that work. I've seen that happen. I would like to beat one of my many barstool drums. I think a lot of it comes down to us as individuals to celebrate diversity and empathy and teach our kids how important that is, how important character is. Yeah. I just keep thinking back to what you said, you know, politics shouldn't get in the way of friendship. I hope that as a nation, we can uh, we can try that. I really do. I want to thank our guests for this amazing conversation. Pastor Franklin Ruff in Stillwell, Kansas, Jock Cunningham in Missoula, Montana, and Kayla Smith in Atlanta. Thank you all so much. And we're taking the pulse of this country right now. We want to hear from you. Share your thoughts. Tweet us at Amplified 2020 coming up. There's been a kind of awakening in the Black and Hispanic community where we're looking at both parties and we're saying, hey, you guys have to earn our votes and earn our, our support. We'll be right back. This is America Amplified. Welcome back. I'm Luis Hernandez with WLRN in Miami. And I'm Rose Scott from WABE in Atlanta. This is America Amplified, Election 2020, Your Voice Counts. You know, today we're checking in with folks from all across the country about how they're feeling as we near Election Day. Wow, Louis, I got to ask you, man, reflect on what we just heard in that last segment. It's the anxiety. Uh, You know, I've been voting since the early 90s. I never worried about... There might be groups of people. There might be violent clashes between those groups. That anxiety is is strange. I've never, never seen it before. And, and you know, look, not just look at the bad side of this. Think about, for example, Kayla, the, the young woman we heard from. It's her first election. There are a lot of people here in South Florida we've talked to. I think it's every 30 seconds a Latino is eligible to vote. So the, every day more people are getting that opportunity to take part in this thing that we do actually care for deeply, which is the right to vote. And that should be celebrated for everyone. Well, let's continue this conversation now. We've been talking about how we're feeling, uh, but how are folks channeling those feelings, those anxieties into action on a local level? We're joined now by three community advocates from Seattle, Washington, Marcy Douglas. And from Pennsylvania, a state that always garners a lot of attention on election night, we welcome Tim Ramos. And from here in Miami, we have Houston Cypress. All of you, thank you so much uh, for the time today. Houston, I want to start with you. You're, you're a member of the Miccosukee tribe, one of the two tribes here in South Florida. Uh, you have focused a lot of your life on community engagement, uh, especially around like the Everglades environmental issues, uh, LGBTQ rights. Um, I'm wondering for you, going into this election, what's top of mind? Top of mind for me going into the election is just trying my best to stay balanced personally so I can continue to be of service to the community. But it's been really difficult. I'm mourning the loss of friends, not only from the pandemic, but the separation of friends from the political uh, polarization that I'm experiencing these days. So just trying my best to stay healthy physically, mentally, spiritually. 
Let's head out to Seattle, Washington, and let's bring Larcy Douglas into the conversation. Uh, you run a civic-minded organization. It's an action academy for college students. What are you hearing from them? You know, they have a lot of anxiety, They, but at, at the core of it is hope. Um, we often encourage them to, you know, speak what they want to say because they need to get into the habit and into a good practice of really talking about politics. Um, you know, we often joke and say we need to have this to be a, a, and, you know, like a habitual part of your life, like going to the dentist. And so really going in and having those conversations to get them to the comfort level of of voicing their opinions, building a community for them to talk about all of those fears and hopes and, and emotions. It's really helpful and probably why they're so driven right now to do something about it. Tim, going out there, you are in one of those battleground states that is going to be watched very carefully uh, in this election. Uh, you're a community advocate, and, and I'm wondering for you, top of mind, what's most important uh, in the work you've been doing for this upcoming election? And it could be beyond the national politics. Um, well, definitely in uh, my area here in uh, where I live in Pennsylvania, where there, there's just so many different issues facing us. Of course, the issues of the pandemic as uh, uh, I believe Larcy Ann Houston talked about, different people with anxiety and the polar the polarizing subjects. Um, I'm always an individual. I'm more solutions-based thinker. I'm a Republican myself, but uh, in dealing with both parties, I think there's been a kind of uh, awakening in uh, the Black and Hispanic community where we're looking at both parties and we're saying, hey, you guys have to earn our votes and earn our, our support. And that's kind of the message I've been driving home in my city um, where I, I live in a, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and it's a uh, three to one Democrat city. And for the larger part of the last 30 years, you, the community is not listened to because you have a kind of one party rule system. And um, I, I always say that had it been the other way around, I'd be on the other side fighting the same fight because um we need our leaders to begin to listen to our community and listen to the voters. I see so many people uh, stressed by the presidential election, but the message I've been giving to our community is that the pressure begins from the ground up, at least in our area. We're not accepting the status quo from either party. We're putting pressure on them to begin to represent the communities that they say they want to represent and do the job the way we, the voters, want them to do it, not the way they do it according to their agenda or their ideology, but actually representing the interests of their constituents. You know, it reminds me that I personally can't burn bridges because working in the environmental sphere, uh, working on behalf of LGBTQ community and, um, working in the spiritual community as an ordained minister, I still have to be able to help facilitate these processes. I still got to be able to go and visit these communities. I still got to be able to talk and make friends across the aisle, um, across the language barrier, and rely on facilitation techniques. Can you give us some insight into those techniques? Because you are at a lot of different intersections. You know, one of the one of the main things that I'm looking at right now is being able to sit with discomfort and, uh, and when we're having community discussions, things can kind of go off on a tangent. And that's a situation that we call the grown zone. And so um, it's really about learning to sit with that discomfort 
helping people to do the same, and also gently guiding things back into a situation where we're um, where we begin to see commonalities, where we begin to see a pathway forward. This idea of bringing people together to talk about issues, and as different as they may be, we got to got to sit down and talk about issues. Larcy, I mean, that's kind of what I remember learning in civics class. Is like that's part of this country is the ability to sit down, debate. And then compromise. This, again, is part of what you're doing and when you're working with students, right? Absolutely. And creating a space for that kind of dialogue to happen is definitely key. We have students coming in saying, you know, they're they're registering their parents for the first time and or I got my friend to actually care about voting um, because the community that we've created allows them to have that practice, right? So, you know, for every dialogue that we start, we just have a set of kind of house rules, you know, we respect one another, we want to hear what you have to say. It's coming from a place of curiosity and openness and not a place of judgment. And basic kind of dialogue rules um, that we start off with like that kind of sets the tone. Communities, conversation, compromise. That's what we've been talking about. If you're just joining us, this is America Amplified Election 2020. And we want to be clear. We know not everyone feels the weight of the world right now. It's not all doom and gloom. But, you know, we got a voicemail from Heidi Sheen in Minnesota. Check out what Heidi had to say. I really think that we are far more connected to each other than we were seven months ago when the pandemic really hit hard. I think that we have slowed down as a country. We're much more mindful and conscious of everything that we are doing. And I think families are really, really united because they have to stick together during COVID-19. Tim, listen, whatever the outcome of Election Tuesday, you heard what Heidi said. She said pretty much, listen, the pandemic will still be a unifying issue for all of us to deal with. What's your take on that? I I agree. Here in Pennsylvania, we've been locked down for months and then there was like an opening and then uh, because of the uh, legislature suing the the governor, then he vetoed it. It So it's a lot of back and forth. So people are frustrated, but they're just trying to do their best to move forward. Um, I do see people being very uh, considerate of each other, uh, respectful, um, even for those of us helping in campaigns. Um, and I hope it goes beyond that. I hope um, everybody can considering the conditions we're in right now that we can go beyond just this moment. As I say that, I again consider the way politics has really brought the ugly out of a lot of people. But I hope that after November 3rd, there's a, a calm, there's a hey, things are what they are, whoever won, won. Let's remember that we're all American citizens and and that, you know, we're together at the end of the day. And that's an interesting idea that, you know, maybe this pandemic has brought us together. Um, Let's take it a little further, though. Uh, Vianti Joseph in Marietta, Georgia, she feels this in a broader community. Uh, Vianti's a fourth generation Indian American and a community organizer that we met in a listening session hosted by WABE's Roxanne Scott. This is the first time I'm seeing in all these years that we have, you know, the Indians and the Pakistanis and the Vietnamese and the Koreans and the Chinese, and we're all talking to each other and planning together. And I just, to me, that's been very uplifting. You know, Houston, 
as a leader of your community, what do you think about what you just heard? You know, um, it reminds me overall of the lessons that we learn from art or storytelling is that conflict is a site of innovation. And so whether it has been the, um, the uprisings or the cultural rebirths that they represent that we've seen over the summer, we've been able to make new friends there. Whether it's the artworks that come from um, protesting or trying to communicate our ideas or our epiphanies, and even just trying our best working with indigenous communities to decolonize science, these conflicts are a site of innovation. So I think that that's one of the hopeful things that come out of these very tough times that we're in as well. Larcy, you work with perhaps the next wave of future leaders. When you talk to them, and do they talk about being that next wave of leaders and, and what it takes to be, whether it's a community or someone that's going to be elected, uh, what do they say about taking on that responsibility? Oh, they're pumped. They're so pumped. And they're ready. They're ready because um, I think, you know, with information being so readily available to them, they're, you know, they're scared, but they're ready. And I think a lot of them want to see change. They they want to see you know, something a little bit better than what we're having the last four years. And I think getting them to understand that you are in control of that vote, you are in control of of how this economy or how this society pans out and gets them a little bit more eager to want to vote locally. It gets them a little bit more eager to understand what they're voting for. So that to me is so impressive that they want to do something about this. So I hear hopefulness. <laughs> compared to when I was hearing anxiety, which is a good thing. Let, let's let uh, go around the room one more time. And Tim, I want to start with you. Uh, regardless of what happens on Tuesday, what's your greatest hope for, you know, the next phase? Um, well, I just continue to hope that as uh, people, we begin to reclaim our rights and our uh, power as, as citizens of, of the United States. I mean, I think that we need to claim every right that we have been blessed to have and, and make sure that no matter who's in government, that they respect it, our right to life, our human rights, um, our right to be free and just live. Houston, we're going to have life after Tuesday, after the election. What's your hope moving forward? I'm really hopeful for the, because we, we talked about the young people, the leaders, the leaders of the next generation. What is their oratory? What is their visionary aspects going to be expressed? So are we going to look for new poetry, new petitions, new prayers? And I think I'm really looking forward to the types of gatherings that we can have in the woods and uh, maybe enjoy the, the types of meteor showers that happen during the year too and, and share a sense of wonder uh, and, and um, be reminded of how humble we are in the vast face of the universe. And Larcy, I'll give you the final word here. You know, we believe in our organization at Common Power, the democracy is a verb. And we truly feel like that is the fight that we're in right now, that we all have to collectively bring into action our civic duties and responsibilities. Um, as, as a citizen in this country, I am hopeful I am so excited to see what this young generation of young adults and leaders are going to throw at our face to say, you need to walk the talk. So I am waiting to see their creativity and I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of them kind of sprinkle and pop up in other places where they can take leadership and civic um, engagement. Larcy Douglas from Seattle, Washington, Houston Cypress out of Miami, Tim Ramos from Allentown, Pennsylvania. 
Thank you all. Appreciate you all. Thank you very much. Take care. There is a lot of tension and uncertainty in the air, and we get it. Our nation is divided, and you can see that anywhere you look. But at the same time, there's a lot connecting us. And each week, we've been hearing that from you. We've been learning what it is to be part of this country, for better or worse. Richard Blanco has thought a lot about this. He's a renowned poet, the son of Cuban exiles, raised here in Miami, where I live. Growing up, he says, it was those American ballads we all know that fueled his early, and as he says, innocent ideas of what it is to be part of this nation, an idea that's evolved over time. America the Beautiful, again. How I sang, oh beautiful, like a song at church with my mother, her Cuban accent scaling up every vowel, oh beautiful, yet in perfect pitch, delicate and tuned to the radiant beams of stained glass light. How she taught me to fix my eyes on the crucifix as we sang our thanks to our savior for this country that saved us. Our voices hymns as passionate as the organ piping towards the very heavens. How I sang for spacious skies, closer to those skies while perched on my father's sunbeat shoulders, towering above our first 4th of July parade. How the timber through our bodies mingled, breathing, singing as one with the brass notes of the marching band, playing the only song he ever learned in English. How I dared sing it at assembly with my teenage voice cracking for amber waves of grain that I'd never seen, nor the purple mountain majesties, but could imagine them in each verse rising from my gut. Every exclamation of praise I belted out until my throat hurt, America, and again, America. How I began to read Nietzsche and doubt God, but still wished for God to shed his grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood. How I still want to sing, despite all the truth of our wars and our gunshots ringing louder than our school bells, our politicians smiling lies at the mic, the deadlock of our divided voices shouting over each other instead of singing together. How I want to sing again, beautiful or not, just to be in harmony from sea to shining sea with the only country I know enough to know how to sing for. En un país normal, anormal es transformado para... That was poet Richard Blanco reading his poem, America the Beautiful, again. And with that, we want to thank all who joined us this hour for America Amplified Election 2020. Listen back to episodes at AmericaAmplified.org. Our producers include Chris Remington, Grace Walker, and Maya Aina. Our senior producer and director is Andrea Tudhope. Our executive directors are Elisa Barba and Donna Vestal. Kathy Liu is our digital editor. As always, special thanks to KCUR in Kansas City, WABE here in Atlanta, Alaska Public Media, and Native Voice One, a Native American radio network. America Amplified is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. 
And I'm Luis Hernandez with WLRN in Miami. This is America Amplified, Election 2020. Your voice counts.